This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. All right. We are back with another dark room episode. I'm Kevin Couchman. This is, this is, I am Kevin Couchman. I'm not Kevin Couchman. <laughs> We're keeping it. Wow. You, I'm not, I'm not, are you? No, I, I you know what I've been doing? I, I distracted Brad because I'm, I'm boxing. I'm, I'm boxing over here. I'm, I'm boxing. I'm got distracted him. I yeah. distracted him. Yeah. Yo, listen, no, yesterday was <laughs> hug a Kevin day. And so Brad, this is stolen valor. That is Brad <laughs> Kelly. That there's is no Brad, Brad Kelly. There's no hug a Brad day. There's, there's no hug a Brad day. No. I, and no. I am Kevin Couchman, yes. and this is the art of darkness, and this is a dark room, and we are going to be talking Hemingway <laughs> yes. with our friend Dylan. Dylan, how yes. are you? Yes, and Dylan, just yeah. just for so, in case people don't know, Dylan is writing one of the premier Substack. So there's a lot of interesting things going wow. on on Substack right now. Yeah, <laughs> you are, you are. Believe believe the hype, people. Um, we'll have links to all of this, but uh, essayful.substack.com, um, and you can follow Dylan at essayful. That's S E S S A Y F U L. Um, Dylan, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time, and we're really looking forward to this conversation. No, no, so, it's a pleasure. Long time listener, first time Zoomer. All right. All right. Great. Well, we'll, we'll kind of tell us, I guess, before we get into specifically Hemingway stuff, just tell us a little bit about, about your Substack, stack, uh, sort of what your goals are, the kind of stuff you're posting there. And, um, and if there's other projects, that's kind of the only thing I'm familiar with, but if you've got other stuff going on that you want to tell people about too, that that's, that's also great. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it kind of, it all began about, so I'm, 
about 10, 9, 10 years ago, so I'm, I'm 27 now, um, so I went off and did English in Trinity College Dublin, and then just, you know, I just, and I needed to get a degree because that just opened so many doors, and I said, you know That's what, a good school. It is a good school. Yeah. It's a great building. Once you get inside it and you get into the, into the bureaucratic nitty-gritty, it, it falls quickly in your estimation. But has the book account, has some cool stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, so very quickly stopped going and just started, you know, hanging out in the library, using the resources and kind of d- developing my own kind of curriculum. And then, you know, it's funny, it was like um, there was no, uh, no exams, so it was all written essays basically pretty much at the end of the year so you'd have 12 week module so i'd arrive in week one bushy tailed and then i'd pick out which week i would actually end up doing my essay on so i would attend that one week out of the 12 and then hand something in at the end and kind of just do my own thing nice nice uh yeah so again you know you know how universities are these days so i kind of i got to taste that firsthand so that was about yeah nine ten years ago now so then i've been kind of reading and keeping notes for a long time and then this ethical thing is like finally public facing something so it's just been sitting kind of dormant in my computer uh precariously sometimes almost lost it all a couple of times but now oh, no. so i'm starting to try and make that kind of yeah, reader friendly yes that's what i'm going for okay very cool very cool and one of the things that you uh most recent things on there actually is a is a sort of three-part series on hemingway and the craft of writing. And the, one of the things that I liked about this is, you know, I, I'm a writer, Kevin's a writer, and a, a lot of the social media um, communities that we're in or adjacent to are, are, are writers. And there's a lot of advice out there that's very, I suppose it's useful, but there's a lot of, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to seek for a, a charitable adjective for shit <laughs> yeah okay fair uh, enough hustle <laughs> bro type it could be copy pasted into any domain yeah yes 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 it's it's sort of like did you try working hard like you know what i mean like it's kind of like yeah obviously yeah obviously. Willing for writers yeah right 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 and mm-hmm. and you're you've got a much different tact and i i i i just i especially in this hemingway piece which i really respect you know, you've kind of you've kind of gone to Hemingway and, and pulled out the real the, the the deep wisdom that you can from his life and his work. What and you know, I guess the question here is for writers, what is there to learn from Hemingway? I know that's a big question. Jesus. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so there's a. I think I think there's so much. I think the the culture now and the the literary community writ large is like gasping for a Hemingway type figure, and he kind of took flight in very similar times in uh, around World War One, when uh, the style was very highfalutin, very verbose. Uh, language was like you know hyperinflating at a remarkable rate due to propaganda and all that stuff from world war one so he was kind of like you know a writer who was like very very wary uh, and then kind of like a a colleague more than a friend of words themselves so, so he was always kind of trying to do most with less and then kind of not let anything um just live on surpoop surpoop yeah i don't even know how to put yeah. that but, um, uh, nailed it yeah nailed so, it. again it's the, it's that uh kind of 
dogged narrowing down like you know you, you read a lot of fiction now it, it, uh, it's, it's it's unfair to call it. it looks like a first draft but like it's not it's not built to last it, it's kind of a, it, it's built for this week this month mm-hmm. um and he kind of constantly positioned himself in kind of a combative relationship with time and the classics so he didn't read a lot of contemporary stuff which uh didn't pay a lot of public respect to contemporary mm-hmm. stuff, which led to a lot of blowouts with his friends. So I think, and I, was, I was thinking the other day, like uh, you look back, I was, I don't know if you've seen that documentary of um, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and, and these kind of relationships, and I think he had a similar one with Norman Mailer, uh, and even Faulkner and Hemingway had their type thing. It's like, you know, like writers aren't supposed to be friends. You know, so there's supposed to be this kind of competitive streak and they're not pampering. They're not worried about like, okay, if I say about this guy this time, maybe that, you know, scuppers a book deal that's coming down the line in six months. It's kind of, there's always kind of social climbing and schmoozing, mm-hmm. um, which leaves us as readers the worst off. Absolutely. So I, I, kind of, I want to bring back the literary fruit. Uh, ah. We need more of that. Yeah, I think we can blame the Academy. And the academic style and the uh, the American academic job market and the MFA system for a lot of this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because everybody needs you need to everybody you meet has to you might need to ask them for a reference later, or you feel like you might need to anyway, right? That's the impression that 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 you're given. But you know, it's interesting. Well, it's like there 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 is no there barely is even a publishing industry anymore. There barely even is an ad. so like really you're you're gonna sacrifice all of your personal integrity so that you can get your tenth of a disappearing pie like what's the point even in my opinion in my opinion you know yeah yeah i i, I interviewed um urban walsh uh, at the end of last year uh for for the spectator and uh yeah he, he did not have glowing things to say from mfa <laughs> uh, students, he said, you can do, you can smell them out. You, as soon as you read it, you know where it came from. And uh, he was uh, he was giving up because then he, he does some lectures and stuff like that. And like every single lecture is immediately like you know, and he puts on this American accent. He's like, what's your process? So it's like, right. it's like the, the the Americanization of the whole thing. And again, mm-hmm. becoming its own. Yeah, it's they they want they want well trained house pets. They want house pets. Yeah. You know, you you definitely have game. to sing. Yeah, yeah, you have to sing for, game, for your yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And that is that is where art goes to die, for sure. Uh yeah. Interesting. <laughs> How long have you been uh Hemingway devotee? What's your when did you come to him first and what was your reading history? What did you read first, do you recall? I think I read uh a farewell to arms when I was in college and I didn't like it. Because I had to read it. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was one of those you know one of those twelve weeks where I actually had to you know sit down and do reading that was theirs as opposed to mine. Um, I think that's I think th- there's something with Hemingway where I think it's the the first time around a lot of people overshoot it or overlook it because mm-hmm. it is simple, it is basic. So then they can be pejoratives if you kind of come in with the wrong frame of mind but then it, it's with it's upon the rereadings when you start to see okay this is like you know it's not as if there's like 10 percent here and nine, 90 percent missing it's like there's 10 percent here but there's 90 percent underneath 
Mm-hmm. And then when you kind of, what I really got to love him was when I started to understand what he's doing. So this is like one of the rare occasions when reading the secondary literature and a little bit of criticism kind of improves your mm-hmm. actual reading of the fiction. Because when you kind of get to know the man who's kind of just kind of an intoxicating kind of character in life, and again, so contrary to the, the literary archetype. I think there's an article recently, like, you know, the, the death of the literary bro, that, that, that whole thing has gone out the window. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a breath of fresh air in that sense. Um, so then it was like kind of reading his fiction and his, his nonfiction. And then there actually is some really cool criticism on him. Um, don't even like that word, but this is just some, some cool analyses of, of his craft and life that kind of, so I kind of read them in tandem, mm-hmm. learning about him and his books and this kind of that rebounding effect between the two that I kind of, yeah, fell in love with. Yeah. That can be very rewarding. Uh, when I did the Dante episode, knowing more about his life, obviously opened up so much about the, the comedy and all the rest, obviously many centuries apart here, but it, it can be really rewarding. Um, yeah. And Hemingway, Hemingway lived a wild life. He was, he was a rock star. He couldn't go anywhere in Spain. He'd be mobbed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he, he got very famous in his hometown, very young for his heroism uh, mm-hmm. in world war one. Um, Brad, it looked like you had something. Well, I was the next place I wanted to was going to go was this bit from your Substack piece on Hemingway uh, about uh, it's from an interview where he is asked um, Hemingway is asked, who would you say are your literary forebears? Those you you have learned the most from. And I love this list. And just thinking about like thinking about a writer now uh, giving a list similar to this, right? (laughs) He says Mark Twain, Flaubert, Stendhal, Bach. Uh, Turgenev, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, Andrew Marvell, John Donne, Maupassant, The Good Kipling, Thoreau, Captain Marriott, Shakespeare, Shakespeare Mozart, uh, Quevedo, Dante, Virgil, Tintorito, Hieronymus Bosch, Bruegel, Patinier, Goya, Giotto, Cezanne, Van Gogh, Gauguin, uh, San Juan de la Cruz, and Gongora. <laughs> Art of Darkness uh, season four yeah, coming right. 2024. It <laughs> sounds like our, it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Add, add, add numbers to that. You got your next few episodes. Lined. Yeah, seriously. Right. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about it to me is, and, and uh, what I love about this list is it's not all writers. I think it's, it might not even be half writers. I mean, Bosch, oh, Bruegel, Mozart. Painters. I think there's like an adventure in there. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's always, that's that's fascinating to me that he's uh, not only aware of their influence, but he understands that he has taken something from these people as influences on his literary work. I mean, what can you say about his you have your piece uh, uh, about him being a, a polymath? Talk, talk about that a little bit. Hemingway, the polymath. Yeah, so that, that was actually a, a failure of a piece in a way. Um because it was meant to, this three part series is meant to be eight. So then mm. that, that whole polymath thing was meant to be stretched out. And I was going to do essays on like, you know, Hemingway the painter, Hemingway the architect, uh, Hemingway the poet. Mm. Um, because he, he just drew so heavily from the, these domains. Um, the, the, the painting one for me, I think is up there with the most interesting and, and his love of Cezanne, which again, when you, when, when you think of Hemingway, you don't think of like, you know, these, these kind of like, you know, a, a stylistic 
kind of you know modernistic painters that that would be an influence he's kind of cast in a very different light today and mm-hmm. um, but then when you kind of do read through his stuff and again he was infatuated with how Cezanne did so much with so little and you, you know you get an entire landscape with like not even the requisite amount of brush strokes right uh, and then the you know the, the the reader is filling in the rest um uh, and then the, the that kind of stemmed i think that forged a lot of his um his rivalry with faulkner as well where so like there's a faulkner was often talking about like you know the, the thunderous silence of prose so he was a he was in a writer of the ear mm-hmm. whereas hemingway was a writer of the eye it's, it's all mm-hmm. pictorial it's all visual you know there's no tolstoy in consciousness seeping in like it doesn't let that kind of psychology or that kind of psychoanalysis enter at all so it's all just you know scene after scene moving straight through which i think is a the beauty and the detriment of some of his writing because i think in my eyes the the short stories are what he was he was a, a short storyist and then and the, the 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 fiction the the, the plus is not there, yeah. Which is because you need you need you need psychology you need to like you know that kind of artifice implanted in it, which kind of you know ruins the realism, because you know life doesn't really work out as as plots. Yeah. Um. And again, like our time now, his time was like you know grand narratives collapsing, uh, all around him. You know, the sort of World War One on the front lines, and then World War Two. He kind of went back. But just like with a pen at this time, yeah. um, so he's like you know totally disenchanted with uh, with all um, with all the artifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I found an interesting article here in the background. I'm going to read a bit from, and this is uh, widewalls.ch. Hemingway's work and art influences, talking about his time in Paris in the 20s. Besides fraternizing with artists, Hemingway was also an avid visitor of museums and galleries, among uh, which he preferred the Louvre, uh, the, Met- the MoMA, the Prado, the Academia in Venice, and the Art Institute of Chicago. Lillian Ross, a New Yorker journalist, in a reportage on her meeting with Hemingway in 1950 when he was on his way from Havana through New York to Europe, noted that Hemingway wanted to pass through the city without much publicity but he expressed his wish to visit some of the museums again, quoting, I don't want to see anybody I don't like, nor have publicity, nor be tied up all the time. Want to go to the Bronx Zoo, Metropolitan Museum, Museum of Modern Art, ditto of natural history, and see a fight. Want to see the good Brugel at the Met, the one, no two fine Goyas, and Mr. El Greco's Toledo. I'm going to try to get into town and out without having to shoot my mouth off. Time is the least thing we have of. (laughs) <laughs> and this connection is very interesting. And I I, uh, I don't want to sort of um, overstate this, but they were devastated um, when they, Mary was devastated that she wasn't able to get back the paintings and things from, mm-hmm. from the Finca in Cuba when, when Castro and company seized the paintings. The impression right. I, I have is that <laughs> I don't know if this is uh, overstating it, but it seems possible to me that if Hemingway had never made a dime from his writing, the collection of paintings that he had from that period in Paris may have been enough to make them multimillionaires or at least comfortable. <laughs> I mean, he went or, he writes about it in um, A Movable Feast, Ooh, about how yeah. they would go without uh, clothes. They just wouldn't buy new clothes, and instead they 
they bought paintings. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that's that. That's why, well put. Well why put didn't they just right click save as? Like, what's the <laughs> Heming, Hemingway as the NFT bro? NFT, I was just, just going to think. He'd have killed himself sooner. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but but there's a yeah there's a I think he said coming back to his uh his infatuation with Cezanne he says like and it kind of ties these two things together he said uh, I learned like you know more writing from walking around the Louvre on an empty stomach uh, looking at Cezanne than I, I kind of did from reading any of my peers basically but that yeah. that empty stomach <laughs> thing as well and there's like accounts where you know you kind of get this kind of flamboyant again you kind of rock star life but he was like. He took the the starving artists and the integrity of that like, extremely seriously. There's like stores of them in Paris, kind of just living on potatoes, turning down huge deals coming in. I think it was the second time in Paris, huge deals coming in to write Schlock for you know the American publishers, and but he wouldn't do it because yeah. you know, because his legacy was like his one kind of north star that he was just mm. not going to fuck with basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, we kind of earlier in the conversation, we're talking about the the sort of striver aspect and the trying to trying to please everybody and trying to fit in and, and thinking that that will be the the route which will as an artist might allow you to establish the kind of reputation you, you might want or need. But some of the people who've had the most distinct personas as artists have been people who had, didn't make any effort to do that at all, right? And they they sort of play up certain aspects of their personality. Um, it, it's them, but it's also uh, perhaps it sounds slightly. And Hemingway was a, a fabulist in conversation. I mean, I don't think he was going to not tell a good. He never let a, a fact get in the way of a good story. I don't think. But but my point is, it's like his his development of a personal uh, persona of his own myth making wasn't going around being making friends with everybody necessarily so much as it was doubling down on Hemingway and you know yeah. there's people like and Cormac McCarthy was was uh, similar but different in that apparently like no real effort to develop a public persona and in that vacuum one kind of creates itself that's interesting to people right like you try to imagine McCarthy going to uh, uh, we have a conference here. What, what is it? The uh, AWP Cormac McCarthy going to AWP every year, you know, like it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen first. Like it wouldn't have helped him either. Um, so it's just interesting. I think comparing some of these figures who've, who still have large, uh presences in that in in that world and how they went about it and how different it is than i think the recommendations that people would give you right if somebody was like here's how to have a writing career it wouldn't be nobody would tell you to do what hemingway did and yet that seemed to work better than than anybody else's route uh let, let me hedge a little bit and sure say he married well two times well, he married married well a couple of times and he married yeah. money the That's second smart. time and that frankly is advice you'll see uh, out there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, which yeah. Oh, that's is yeah. always extraordinarily embarrassing to me yeah. for some reason when i read that i just recoil in horror probably yeah. because of my midwestern yeah. upbringing but that's real advice that people will give like you want to be a writer 
make sure you marry well. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, right. Okay. But yeah. but yeah, I'm with I'm with you, Brad. I mean, you know, nobody would say go and offend people, go and make enemies of your of your colleagues. Um, you know, some people would even say, you know, go and get an MFA. I always say if you're gonna get an MFA, make sure they pay you. Yeah, uh, that's that's the caveat I have. But um at the same yeah. time, other other people will tell you don't don't bother and save the time and go and live. I I have well, and you know, so Dylan, Kevin, and I are both MFA uh, survivors, and so I we both have <laughs> mixed mixed opinions <laughs> about that. I, you know, it's it's great in some ways, but the, but but like any, but I like I think like any educational program, there is. Uh, a process of unlearning that has to happen later afterwards not that you unlearn everything but that you go back through and you you kind of pick and choose what was of value and where the where the gaps were perhaps and you know try to try to undo what any damage that, that might have sure, a lot of done. the damage is in your own head right because mm -hmm. you you sort of imagine it'll be one thing but reality never works out that way right. um i right. want to say too on this podcast we always do four patreon after dark episodes we prep something a little extra yeah i'm really enjoying the conversation so far if you want to hear a little extra bit after the fact patreon.com slash art of dark pod patreon updated their app they had it's one of slick the, now one of the worst apps in the world it was horrific yes. and they they did it's a white pill i mean <laughs> i'm so pleased one of the things i say about silicon valley is that it's all bait and it's bait and switch up and down the line yeah. and they corner the market and then everything degrades or it gets more expensive or whatever they seem to have actually done a positive thing here so yeah. i'm very pleased with this patreon there's there's there's, there's chat in there now there's patreon there's chat, chat which is huge there now so if you yeah. want a maybe a less noisy version of the telegram. We love the telegram. We love mm -hmm. our telegram people, t.me slash art of dark pod. But there's a second chat. That's like maybe, I don't know, behind the curtain mm -hmm. uh, at patreon.com slash art of dark pod. We are going to talk about specifically on the after dark, uh, the garden of Eden, which is the kind of gender bendy novel that uh, Hemingway wrote, which was uh, released posthumously, if I'm not mistaken. In the eighties, I think, right? Yeah. And I'm going to yeah. read something from this. And I know we've talked okay. about it before, like on our core episode. And, but I think it'll be interesting to, to have Dylan uh, with us and talk a little bit about that. Maybe we can, I guess, take the conversation there for a minute uh, and come back to it on the after dark. Dylan, are you familiar with that novel? I, I can't say I've read it. No. To okay. be honest, I can't. Yeah. Like Posthumous stuff. Um, couldn't do it to the man, you know. I yeah. ah. <laughs> not let. Well, that, that's my excuse for just actually not reading it. No, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, no. Yeah. It, he'd, have been, hmm. he'd have been infuriated with with the idea of posthumous releasing stuff that he didn't sign off on. Yeah. He'd be infuriated anyway. He was just. I think that's <laughs> where he lived. Uh, but he, uh, he got from a nine to a ten. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, Hemingway. To me, uh, we talked about. We just did. Um, oh my God, Brad, who did we just do Mishima. yesterday? Mishima yesterday. Yeah. Um, and uh, no chill, we said. No. And I feel like Hemingway is like kind of an American version of that. Like where Hemingway was able to chill out was probably like heavily, heavily drunk. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that, is that really chill? Right. I don't think it, nah. I don't think it really qualifies. Yeah. Um, with the Garden of, you know, if you're a Hemingway completist, of course you have to read the Garden of Eden, but it's definitely not like rush to read this. Um, but it's, are you, what's it so, what's so interesting about it to me is the, the sort of the left turn it forces you to make on your perception of him as a person, right? It's sort of like, oh, he wrote 
as, as we'll talk about in the in the after. yeah an entire novel that he had to kind of hide away because of the persona that he had cultivated right and it right. runs so contra contrary to the the persona very right. interesting gender bendy legitimately you could say capital q queer novel from hemingway yeah. what? unexpected what? unexpected uh, very sure. unusual uh dylan what do you what do you think is his finest his finest uh book if you had to say your favorite my favorite i would say i i do i do lean more nonfiction than than fiction it's like i love it but i you know not like you know the kind of like a Steven Pinker kind of sterile, no, no, not, right. not, not casting shade, but I mean, just in the writing style, but like it was a kind of literary nonfiction. So I think death in the afternoon, uh, mm. for me, it's just, it's just so many, so many quotes that, that you, you can just pull. And I think that's, that that's where he kind of was most at ease. I think, because, you know, his, mm. his fiction is so journalistic. That's kind of where his style came from. That's how he actually kind of seemed to just, spend the the voluntary portions of his life you know literally getting back on the front lines um received a medal of honor i think for his uh stuff from the spanish civil war so i think mm-hmm. that's he was in his pocket there and i think the, the the fiction was almost something that you know he kind of it may have come from a more high-minded like a notion of himself because i think he only read he only wrote I think I'm going to get my timelines right. I think he only decided he wanted to write a novel after he was hanging out with Gatsby and he read. Yeah. Uh, an with, with Fitzgerald. Yeah. With Fitzgerald. With, yeah. With Fitzgerald. Sorry. Yeah. 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 But then he read, read, read an early draft of Gatsby and then he said, it. and again, that's the, you know, that's the competitive streak. It's kind of fuck you. Okay? Yeah. He's got to, he's got to beat that now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, we, but, but dude, it would get Kevin, Kevin, think about this. It's tough. You're a young, you're a young writer and you, you got a buddy who, yeah, you like him. And you're like, oh, let me read your thing. And he hands you the great Gatsby. And you're like, Jesus Christ. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. You're expected good, yeah. some you're yeah. expected some kind of half-assed sort of, you know, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to pretend I like this. And, <laughs> and he hands you one of the great novels of the 20th century. <laughs> Absolutely. Be, and and you're a competitive guy like Hemingway, that would just oh my God. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I we we should at some juncture do an episode, a special. Maybe we'll do it for Patreon, just about Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, there's so much to unpack there. And they have the book of letters and everything, and the you got incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you know Hemingway, this sort of Chicago Protestant, but ultimately, I think did he convert? I can't remember. In any case, he sort of flirted with Catholicism, but then he got Fitz, and Fitz went to Princeton, and just the whole dynamic is just. And then they're in Paris. I mean, what a time to be alive! Uh, you know, it's like, and, a, it's like a father son relationship, even though they were the same age. Right. When you read the letters, he's kind of coming to sort to man up and kind of get over it. And yeah. Yeah. Well, Hemingway right. was never going to put himself in this sort of any kind of like subaltern position right it was never going to be like i mean he was an apprentice he was an apprentice to dead writers that he loved from the past but another guy that he knows in person he's not gonna sort of bend the knee to that guy it's probably revenge for the great gatsby that kind of had that dynamic he immediately probably took charge and kind of just started little brown him uh, right right yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah but didn't he he didn't he introduce um fitzgerald to max perkins 
I think that I think was. That's right. I, I think that's right. The yeah. order of operations. It's the stuff yeah. of legend. The, the, those right. relationship triangles out there are, are just so so mad. You see, it's like, oh, damn, I can't remember who it was. It's just kind of avant garde writer, and it's just he he tells it just going into Ezra Pound's uh, little studio, and then Hemingway was there teaching him out of box, and then there was like a scrap between him and, and one of them was on the floor, and it constantly Joyce was. Joyce is a bit of a bro as well. Like, I think the, yeah. the glasses kind of uh, don't do him justice in, in the pictures. He kind of looked a bit nerdy, but yeah, apparently he was a raging alcoholic as well. Through the oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he, he was, was famously uh, underbred per, yeah. per Virginia. Virginia uh, I'm, I'm preparing Beckett right now, uh, Dylan. And uh, I don't know. What are you just indulge me for a moment? What are you, what's your take on Beckett? In, in 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> I, I like Beck I think he, he perhaps the opposite of of Hemingway in the sense that you know Hemingway is, it's, it's it's real life and nothing else and then with Beckett it's all nothing else and very little real life it's kind of complete <laughs> intellectualism and high mindedness um, but yeah there's an interesting kind of cro- um, link between those two as well where that idea of the the expat um and joyce wrote about that it's like i couldn't write about dublin until i left dublin and uh the decade kind of had a lot of that as well shaw had a lot of that as well and and, and hemingway had loads of that you kind of said like you know i couldn't write about michigan until i was in paris uh, i couldn't re- write about madrid until i left so this kind of sense of distance and kind of getting out of the heat of the moment and then coming back to it with kind of um cold look to really kind of like you know nail down on the details of things he talks about you know boiling down reality and never spreading it thin mm-hmm. um and that t- tying in with um elliot's objective correlative as well he says like you know it, he just wanted to get down the kind of mechanism that would make the reader have the experience he says like you know in, in the first draft you get all the kick and the reader gets none, and by the end you should get zero kicks. So the reader, the reader gets it all. It's kind of like stripping himself um, mm-hmm. out of it and just not letting his kind of ego or emotions get in the way. I, mm. I like I like that. That's certainly been true in my experience. It's the the later drafts are. It's not that much fun anymore. <laughs> you keep doing it, and it's rewarding in its own way, but it it doesn't match the uh, the uh, the adventure that the first draft is. Um, yeah. What are what are some other uh, what are some other Hemingway and I don't want to do this like top ten Hemingway tricks for writing, but like Here's what are some it, yeah. other what are some other things you've learned in your relationship with Hemingway uh, that are beneficial to writing that you have young writer out there might want to hear. Yeah, there's a there's a lot. I think this, this idea again. This is kind of why. I kind of honed in on that word craft mm-hmm. in the first place. I think um, William Dershowitz, not the lawyer, um, mm-hmm. he, he wrote something really cool as well about how this this kind of transition from craft to write or to, from craft to art. Mm-hmm. And this is where there's like all kind of notions about like, you know, writer's block and having to get inspired and all that stuff kind of came. And that wasn't the case back then. And you look at words like um, playwright, and that right at the end is like, it's like a, like a maker. So it's like they, they just saw themselves as just putting things together 
like um and, and there there wasn't this kind of you know again it was kind of more of a mechanical craftsman like task and it didn't have all this kind of like you know intellectual social status baggage uh attached to it so he took that really seriously and he was like you know like he has a quote of like i'm i'm apprenticed out until i die like you know the only dopes say they mastered it um and again that ties back with how much he, he venerated uh, the past uh as well so i think that that's a huge thing and again uh also again kind of you know it's slightly out of kilter with our times it's that he was said like you know it, it never it never gets easy Mm-hmm. And then it never even gets easier. So, so he says, like, you know, don't be a bitch, basically. I think well, it might, might even be a, a direct quote. And he said, like, forget your personal tragedy. It's not meant to be easy. It doesn't get easier. And I feel impotent every time I sit down to write. And he said, like, the only reason that people pay writers in the first place, like, the, a writer is just a measure of your ability just to stay at the desk. Like, so you can't say everyone comes in the same. It's just the last one to get up loses. And then there's the last one still sitting down. Yeah, that's that. That's where kind of immortality lies. Yeah. Um, Oof, so I think you know everything's so easy that. now, and it's like you know you fucking Uber Eats and shit. You don't even you get get your right. supermarkets so then. So there's so that kind of chasm between you know like the difficulty of everyday life and the difficulty that writing is supposed to have. Good writing is supposed to have. <laughs> um. So I think that's kind of like slightly the easiness of life is kind of pulled writing away from how hard people are able to stay in the boiling pot. I think. Yeah. No, I, I quite like that. I, 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 there's, that's something I feel like uh, this is not about my writing process, but just relating to this person. That's something that I felt like I've tried to think about is like, um, if you just work really hard, you don't even need to be talented, right? Like you can just, if you just keep going, you don't even actually need to be like innately good at the thing. And I think innate talent is not necessarily overrated but it's sort of it's one piece of a complicated um set of things that that lead to somebody writing a book like for whom the bell tolls right clearly Hemingway has talent but um there's plenty of talented people that don't ever really do anything with it yeah yeah I think maybe the one I I I think talent is the the, the myth of being born with talent I think you know life can take so many left and right turns all the Mm. way through that that doesn't really add up to me. I think, unfortunately, for for those I disagree with, I think taste, maybe having that having that eye to be able to discern the good from the bad. I think anyone anyone kind of moves through things, but to be able to make those decisions early and kind of just have that snapshot, instinctual good bad moving forward. I think that maybe I just know some people that can you know they don't even know they don't have it type thing, and I was like, okay, maybe that's like a a thing, and it, it is literally it's it's an it. It's like an it's yeah. like you know it's like a a charisma thing people have in social settings. I think there's an artistic version of that where people just yeah, have an eye and a way of moving around things. So that may be. Yeah, uh, I literally like that. There's something from, I, I remember a little, uh, there's an interview with Ira Glass. People who've listened to This American Life know Ira Glass. And um, he said something about generally when people get into an art, they do the reason that they start is because they actually have very good taste. Like they, they, they're able to see something and understand what's good about it, what they don't, you know, and, and then the problem is when you start trying to make your own thing, if you have good taste and then you just start, there's no way what you do is going to match your good taste. And what happens is most people go, well, the thing I made sucks and obviously I'm never going to live up to that thing, right? Like, 
it, and it's the I, process of like bringing your ability up to your taste that can take years, right? And many, 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 many failures. Well, and this is where culture and uh, maybe an MFA program, maybe just moving in a circle of writers can help because what they aren't going to teach you in a typical education is that the, the great Gatsby that that is sitting on the shelf right now over here at, mm-hmm. at Barnes and Noble or whatever is the finished gem of how many drafts? 20? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how many drafts you did. And yeah. the work of one of the greatest editors of all time mm-hmm. that you can't see, you don't see the process. You just, and and that's all you're going to read throughout your education is yeah. going to be the masterpieces of the greatest writers working with the greatest editors who've ever lived. And if, and that's where your taste is developed mm-hmm. for young writers and I don't mean age for anybody who's starting to write. You need to understand that that first draft is not is not the finished thing. Yeah, and, and I think Hemingway even famously said the first draft of anything is shit. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah, I just we need to impress that upon people. And and you know, if you're teaching writing and all the rest, just I, if I was teaching it to people, I would be saying you just have to know that that final product that you've looked at your entire life, you know, you're just seeing ma- all you're consuming are masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Right. So one <laughs> right. one good trick is to kind of really go deep and, and be a completist with with an author who you admire. I remember I did that with Steinbeck when I came back. I had been living uh, I'd been living over in London for a year, and I came back and I really immersed myself in all the Americans. I read Hemingway, I read um, Fitzgerald, I read Steinbeck, I read Faulkner. I said, "Why haven't I consumed all of this stuff? I'm going to go do it now." And when I got to Steinbeck, I really went and started. I went and read his Juvenalia. And I was like, oh, this is garbage. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you know, you can like, you can do that. And then, right. and that, that's how you get, that's how you arrive somewhere. Dylan, are you with yeah, me? There's, there's, yeah. there's an interesting dynamic. I think uh, I heard it said recently that, well, first of all, it's like, you know, it's like the, the worst tragedy ever to befall a writer is when you get your first novel published. So <laughs> you kind of want to have a huge scrap heap of stuff. And then they say that, you know, these kind of breakout stars, it's often, okay, like one hits the shelves and there's nine in the cabinet. And mm-hmm. then the prob- problem is you get that success. And then all of a sudden, now for the first time in your life, you have a deadline and a publisher waiting for your next one. So they grab one of the bad ones from the mm-hmm. cabinet and try to say, but it's never quite, it was in the cabinet for a reason. So then they're kind of forced to drag out this kind of book that wasn't meant to be seen. And that's why you have like, in the same way you have second album syndrome, you have like second book syndrome, like, you know, which like, you know, Harper Lee and stuff suffered so much from. Yeah. Yeah. This is Kevin. Right. While I've, I've intentionally been unsuccessful as a writer. Yeah. yeah really. Right. Very good. Very good. Brad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've actually written nine books. You're just on your pen. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Um, but yeah, to, to, to slightly kind of uh, white pill those who weren't like, you know, blessed with taste, like, but like, you know, taste is getting harder and harder to follow. It is harder to pick up. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and East of Eden, it's a monster. Yeah. Um, so the, a lot of those born with good taste are just going to like, you know, scroll that away to some degree. So you can, you can outwork those too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And there's, there's something to be said about having a taste that runs contrary to the mainline thing, which I would say Hemingway did. Um, Hemingway reinvented the English language, Americanized it and simplified fiction uh, so that somebody with a sixth grade 
education could read his story um, mm. without ever having studied for the GRE or whatever else, without having <laughs> right. the thesaurus and, you know, a more sophisticated reader would maybe get more out of it. Maybe not. Uh, yeah. And that's part of the beauty of his writing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote. I remember just from one of the criticisms that was like, you know, Hemingway would not have written so well if everyone else hadn't written so badly. So it was just like, you know, things had gotten just so, it was like, you know, it was like a, a copy of a copy of a copy it just become you know was so artificial and then he just came out of nowhere and just regrounded things and i think that's also why things he traveled so like it was like it was like you know a, a, it was like virality when when his first books came out because they just like took over japan like took over mm-hmm. italy took over russia because it is that simple english that was easily translated without missing the, the, you know that that kind of like you know whatever you know 10 15 percent that like it dies in translation that's oh that's a great point culture that didn't happen to him so his was the only thing that could like literally kind of carry that magic through the translation process and very yeah, here in like yeah. in, in 1930s russia it was like who's your favorite writer and everyone was like you know well besides all the you know you know russian writers they would have gone to the back of their head they were like you know hemingway it was like always their favorite foreign writer yeah Brilliant. Yeah, in I fact, not, remember, mm, Kevin, if you remember yeah. when we did the Tarkovsky episode, Tarkovsky as a young, as a film student adapted The Killers by Hemingway. And it was like the first oh, time that the favorites. Soviet film, quote unquote, industry had allowed an adaptation of an American, uh, of anything that wasn't Soviet, right? Mm. Um, yeah, pretty. Yeah. And we have to think of this period too as sort of America's <clears throat> coming out party as it, 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 like a major power. Because World War One really flipped things, um, mm-hmm. and America was poised to be a global superpower, and Hemingway kind of provided the muscular prose, prose style to sort of accompany the American century, as corny as that phrase might be. Yeah. I mean, America, yeah, um, America went abroad. Burned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was burned in Germany, so that's kind of like you know, you, you know, you're doing something right. <laughs> why did they burn him in germany for just... I, think it was just a, I think it was just a sheer americana of it um, mm, sure right. to be honest i think they're probably burning everything they were burning they were burning a lot yeah fair enough yeah um let me read uh, we're approaching the end and we'd like to read at least a little something i as we were coming towards this i i grabbed the nearest hemingway book that i had which happened to be this cool old edition of uh the snows of kilimanjaro and other stories and i realized i had never read the snows of kilimanjaro and so i decided to give it a read and i was kind of surprised so for people who aren't familiar it's uh it's fairly it's contextually autobiographical uh the character harry is a writer he's there with his wife who does seem to be a, a a fictional version of um who is the second wife kevin do you remember i can't remember her name off the top of my head Oh, um, it was Hadley and, Hadley then, and then, oh gosh, I'll look it up. I'll look well, it up. Well, anyway, the yeah. one that, the one that had even more money. Um, yes. Yeah. Pauline, um, Pauline, Pauline. Yeah. I, I believe this is yeah. supposed to be Pauline. They're in, they're in Africa and the, the Harry, the ma- character has, he took a thorn. He got scratched by a thorn and it is now gangrenous 
And he's basically he's waiting to get a plane ride to somewhere where there's a hospital. But of course, they're in they're in the Serengeti. And, you know, you can't necessarily just snap your fingers and get to the hospital. So the idea is that he's dying and it alternates it between conversations between the, the the writer and his his wife and he says some terrible things to her you know i never loved you and in his head he's 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 convinced himself that he's lied himself into loving her this whole time um and then he alternates that with actually trying to be sweet to her and not wanting to die this way with this bitterness but also admitting that he likes quarreling right but then as he's sort of fading in and out of consciousness you have these passages that um are are curiously very Hemingway-esque, but possibly not. Um, it, it's almost like a uh, it's almost like a different Hemingway style. It's Hemingway filtered through this idea of a person sort of in a fever dream. And I thought it was interesting that he decided to go this route. So let me just bear with me while I just read a little bit. Um, again, this is from the Snows of Kilimanjaro. Quote. No, he had never written about Paris, not the Paris that he cared about. But what about the rest that he had never written? What about the ranch and the silvered gray of the sagebrush, the quick, clear water in the irrigation ditches and the heavy green of the alfalfa? The trail went up into the hills and the cattle in the summer were shy as deer, the bawling and the steady noise and slow moving mass raining a dust as you brought them down in the fall. And behind the mountains, the clear sharpness of the peak and the evening light and riding down along the trail in the moonlight bright across the valley. Now he remembered coming down through the timber in the dark, holding the horse's tail when you could not see and all the stories that he meant to write. About the half-wit chore boy who was left at the ranch that time and told not to let anyone get any hay and that old bastard from the forks who had beaten the boy when he had worked for him stopping to get some feed. The boy refusing and the old man saying he would beat him again. The boy got the rifle from the kitchen and shot him when he tried to come into the barn and when they came back to the ranch he'd been dead a week, frozen in the corral and the dogs had eaten part of him. But what was left he packed on a sled wrapped in a blanket and roped on and you got the boy to help you haul it and two and the two of you took it out over the road on skis and 60 miles down to town to turn the boy over he having no idea that he would be arrested thinking he had done his duty and that you were his friend and he would be rewarded he'd helped to haul the old man in so everybody could know how bad the old man had been and how he would tried to steal some feed that didn't belong to him and when the sheriff put the handcuffs on the boy he couldn't believe it then he'd started to cry that was one story he had saved to write. He knew at least 20 good stories from out there and he had never written one. Why? So mm. Mm. sort of at random a little bit, but I, I that was a sort of an italicized fever dream part. He's switching perspectives. He starts talking. He starts saying you. He switches into the second person sort of. Um, uh, and there's also it, it is. A little more interior than I think the vast majority of Hemingway's work is in that there's a interior dialogue with himself. You know, why didn't he write this thing? There's a there's a conversation going on in his head. Um, and I, I was just struck by that whole story. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful piece. It's, I don't know, 25, 30 pages. And it reminded me that I think I like the Hemingway short stories better than the novels, really. I think they're they're each one of them, uh, the best of them anyway, are these sort of perfect little capsules. They always they're self-contained, they're they're consistent. He's often you can often feel that he's trying to do something specific 
like setting out to capture a, a specific feeling and really i mean almost i can't think of a bad one that i've ever read um so yeah just wanted to yeah. just wanted to share that with people <laughs> thanks Brad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, but again, because you, you do get to avoid that whole, you know, conundrum of plot in the short story. And I think that's what, like, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. You see some writers talking about him and they say, you know, Hemingway was the greatest poet that you ever lived. And it's like, you know, an interesting, mm-hmm. interesting choice of words. Because in, mm-hmm. in the short story, more than the novel, uh, and it's something he was like autistically in, um, attentive to was the, the, the white to black ratio on the page, which again goes back to the, the painting thing. He was like, yeah. it has to look a certain way. Like, you know, the, the white space is doing as much as the black, which is that kind of poetic uh, quality. And you think of like, you know, hills like white elephants when, you know, it, it's it's just dialogue. There's you know, no description. It's sometimes difficult to know kind of who's talking except for the rhythm. And then apparently the, the whole thing, which you can't really decipher from the text itself, was about um him I think it was him wanting her to have an abortion and, and her not wanting to so this is kind of big huge kind of w- gravitational way just off the page that you you're not privy to but you're kind of kind of getting the kind of the, the, the secondhand smoke from it mm-hmm. um so yeah I know I think for him it's just short stories and um yeah and he does he does like he's known for what he's known for, but it, it bleeds out, and he does. There's like moments of experimentation, like that italicized passage there. Yeah, I think, I think uh, sorry, uh, Adam Gopnik wrote a piece which kind of ties in, you know, um, foreshadowing into that kind of gender bendy stuff um, mm. for, for, from his work as well. And he said it was like it's less that he was a stoic. He wasn't a stoic. He was a, a wounded epicurean so it was like <laughs> he was like an epicurean trying to be a stoic but it bled out that, that kind of fight about him trying not to let emotions in trying not to let right. high-minded in it's not that they're not there it's like you're actually seeing him struggle to keep them out mm-hmm. which is that kind of dance well and that's what makes it so interesting to read through really is to watching that a person a, a person struggle with those sorts of things kevin you had something well just that this um uh, sort of making opaque this part of the story, the the abortion, the thing that you dare not speak about, which would have caused scandal at the time and which he wanted to write about anyway. It goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks where you, you were not allowed to show the violence on stage. It was literally like obscene or whatever it is, obscene. It was Horace like- would kind of tell you about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Precisely. So he's doing a similar thing, just sort of modernized, and it does give it more power. It it goes all the way through to like we think about a movie like Jaws or or Alien. It the fact that it's not there until the very end or whatever. You sort of have yeah, to like yeah. you know it's in your head. Yeah, the reader has to do. It. And he was a huge for like almost kind of democratizing the, the reading process, and like you know the reader was like. He, you were on a level with him. He wasn't giving you anything. You had to do half the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, like, and he let you do half the work. He wasn't like, you know, like there's like a, sometimes like if a, the writers criticize like the kind of visual turn in as the dominant form of media, whereas like you're given the image and you don't need to create it. Um, right. right. And yeah, yeah, but like Jaws, this is perfect. Even like, you know, True Detective season one, my, like, my, my favorite scene is that when they both sit down and watch the tape, you, you you don't see it, but you, you just don't. see their faces and they're just like, you know, they're kind of spazzing out. Like, 
Right. Uh, that just makes it so much part because it could be anything instead of it being something. Yeah. Yeah. And the mind immediately populates that emptiness with whatever mm. it's going to do. Every person's is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Good times. Well, so we're going to come back on the after dark. This has been a lot of fun. I'm enjoying this, Dylan. We could go. We could go for another five hours. We could yeah. do an entire oh, course this, on this Hemingway. So <laughs> what a blast! Yeah, and thank you for being a you know for being a listener and for uh, for joining us on this one. I was I was looking at your essays. It's very interesting uh, stuff. Like Brad said earlier, if you want you know to maybe think about what it actually takes to to write like Hemingway, we you know we strongly recommend you get over to Dylan's uh, Substack and check out those essays. We're gonna have two things for the after dark we're going to mm. talk about the garden of eden hemingway's mm. uh, posthumous gender bending novel and i'm going to read a little bit from it and i happen to know that brad uh under the persona of brad under his brad persona right. actually <laughs> actually climbed mount kilimanjaro yeah, i did and which so, Hemingway i don't think did actually i think he was right. just near it yeah so yeah. I'm gonna. We, we <laughs> okay. are gonna pick pick Brad's brain about like okay. what it was actually like to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Are you are okay. you down to do that? Dylan? Sure, I yeah. think that sounds oh, pretty you're fun. Right? Me, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Sorry, so. Oh, brilliant, uh, Dylan. Give your give your plugs one more time. Where can people find you? And what do you got going on? Uh, yep. So again, yeah, SFO the plug Delano A4 on Twitter, and then going on so. Um, started working with a company called O'Shaughnessy Ventures. So we're kind of trying to plaster in or kind of replace all the various porous holes in cinema, in particularly I'm on the book side. So we're, we're editing a couple of books, trying to give people a, you know, a sideways path off the, off the high road for, you know, all the good writers that are kind of getting overlooked by the fuckery of modern publishing. Very um, cool. Yeah. So again, if you know, if anyone's sitting on a book, send it to me on Twitter. Like, yeah, we're we're always looking at new stuff, going through things, looking for new writers. So, uh, hit me up for sure. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Well, okay. thank you. Thank you, Dylan. Yes. Lots of fun. Yeah. No, that was incredible. Really. Yeah, very good. We'll be back on the After Dark for Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. And I'm going to box my way out of the room quick. Hemingway <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs>